So every once in a while, clergy get together, and when we're having lunch or we're swapping stories, we'll talk about our most embarrassing moments. And I haven't had a ton of embarrassing moments in ministry, but I hearken back when I tell about my most embarrassing moment to a Christmas Eve service just like this. For those of you who are longtime Harvest Pointers, we were in the big warehouse, where the present-day Sky Zone is, right up here on Jonesboro Road, and we were there for five years. And um, one night, when it was time at the very end of this worship service, which I love so much, there will be a moment in this worship service where all the lights are turned out, and we experience complete darkness. And we are reminded that we were in darkness without the light coming into the world. And so a light, a flame comes in, and then that flame is passed to us. And we remember that Christ is the light of the world, and that he said that we are the light of the world. And I got so emotional about that when we had all lit each other's candles and we closed by singing Silent Night that when we were all done, I said, don't blow out your candle. Just, just keep your candle lit till you get to the edge of the building, you know, and then we'll have baskets there. I didn't plan on that. I just made it up. And I said, we'll just we'll have baskets there at the edges of the doors and then you can blow out your candle right before you go out into the parking lot. Sure enough, the first person that walked up to me, and I still had my candle lit, reached out and said, Merry Christmas. And I hugged her, and she hugged me. And on the very backside of her hair was a flame. I lit her hair on fire. I backed up from her, and I looked at her, and literally she did not know her hair. It was like fire shooting up. One of those hair, it was one of those hairspray people. You know what I mean? Oh, my goodness. I reached around her and patted her on the back of the head. I said, I am so sorry. She never came back to our church. But anyway, uh, <laughs> preacher set her hair on fire. That's my funny story. After silent night, we will be blowing out the candles before anybody hugs one another, all right? You know, um, we're going to read God's Word together. So I invite you to grab your Bible, maybe your iPad or your iPhone. Before we do that, I just want to say a, a personal word of privilege to say thank you. Thank you for putting life on pause. Um, I made a commitment years ago because tomorrow I'll find myself in Augusta, Georgia with my mom and my family after our morning services. I made a commitment always on Christmas Day, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, to always be in worship on Christmas Eve and always bow my knee in my little back bedroom in Augusta, Georgia with my family, uh, kind of doing that, oh, holy night, fall on your knees kind of moment. Worship like this is so important because what is worship? It is declaring the worth of God in our lives. That's what worship is, declaring worth. And tonight you have said, I am declaring his worth by being in church. So thank you for being here with us. Matthew 2, the Bible says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, 
they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You know, these magi that we're going to study tonight, and we're this scriptural story from the book of Matthew, they can seem so foreign to us as people who, are, who live centuries now, millennia after them, they can seem so foreign to us. And, and even who were they and what were they about and why are they in this story? That's what I want to talk with you about tonight. Um, in a way of getting there, I thought I might show you a beginning of a movie, The Young Messiah. The Young Messiah was a movie that came out recently, and we're just going to show you a very short clip, but it gets you to at least imagine what it was like for them to show up, and maybe even imagine what it was like for Jesus to be told the story himself as a little boy about these kings, these magi who had come to worship him. These three noblemen from the east arrived to see you. Everyone in Bethlehem saw them come. They believed in magic. They read stars. And they advised the kings of Persia what they should do. They said they followed a great star in the heavens to that house where we were staying. They called you king. And their servants laid gifts in front of you. Gold and other things, I, I don't remember. Looks like you two found something to talk about. You know, when we read the, the story of Jesus' birth from Luke, we are told a different perspective than Matthew gives us. You remember the story from Luke, right? There's a census that's going to be held throughout all of the land. Joseph and Mary must go back to their hometown, so they journey to Bethlehem. It's in that place, which is a nine-day journey, that Mary starts to have the child, Jesus, and he is born because there's no room in the extra house there or, or in the inn, as we call it. He's born in a manger, and then in that story, angels appear out in the, in the field, and shepherds are... are commanded and challenged and invited to come to see the birth of this new king. And these words are spoken that a savior has been born unto you and, and he will bring peace on the earth. And the shepherds go and they find the manger and the baby just as the angels said it would be. That's the story from Luke. Now the story from Matthew, which we read tonight, is a lot different. doesn't mention a journey to Bethlehem at all. In this story, it's Joseph's story, and we get the story uh, about Mary and Joseph having a baby, but Magi following a star from the east, arriving in Jerusalem, asking a king 
where is the one who was born king of the Jews? And then we get this unfolding story about their journey finally down into Bethlehem, them even leaving by another route, and then the portion we didn't even read tonight, Mary and Joseph taking Jesus, escaping Herod's sword, and journeying into Egypt to save the life of Jesus, and then Herod slaughtering children all throughout Bethlehem looking to kill the soon-to-be king. The Matthew story is just a lot darker of a story, isn't it? That's why most of us, when we're reading the Bible at Christmas time, maybe this happened last night as we were having dinner, my father-in-law pulled out a Bible and he read from Luke chapter 2 because it's such more, it's a more romantic story. It's, it's a nicer story, but tonight, on this Christmas Eve, I've chosen to focus on Matthew. Just to remind you of the reality of the birth of Christ, that it wasn't all romantic and it wasn't all easy, it was real. And even when he was born, there was danger, maybe even impending death coming after him. Tonight we're going to look at the wise men. I'm going to challenge you to think about who King Herod was. We're going to analyze together who King Jesus is. And I think what Matthew really wants us to do is answer a question, and that question is this. What king will you follow? What kingdom do you want to be a part of? Because these kings represent vastly different kingdoms. So I've given you some notes there, and you're invited to take a pen and maybe jot down some things if you learn something new. Maybe most importantly, if you hear God's voice for your life, you could jot a little note down there in, in the margins of your notes there as, as, we, uh, as we answer the question, who were these people? The wise men, King Herod, and King Jesus. So first of all, who were the wise men? Who were the magi? Where did they come from? Why are they in the story altogether? Who were they and what is their significance? So first of all, where did they come from? The Bible tells us they came from the east. Now, when I was a little boy, I thought that meant the Orient, you know? I thought that meant Asia or somewhere far away, and it could have meant that. We're not given any more descriptive terms other than the east. But most scholars think that they might have journeyed somewhere from the area of what was known during that time as the Babylonian area. It would have been about a three-month journey to finally get to Bethlehem from there, and then a three-month journey back. So if they, if, even if they only came from that far away, it would have been about a six-month commitment for them to go and follow this star. Now, the star, what was the star? How did God put a star in place to lead people to, to the birth of Jesus? You know, um, what's, first of all, remember we're talking about the wise men. What's interesting is they must have been familiar with Jewish prophecy. Because Jewish prophecy says that God would have a star mark the place of the birth of the Messiah. And evidently, these magi were astrologers because they followed stars. Evidently, they were looking at this, they, they knew their, their astrology so well that they were looking at the stars, and then all of a sudden, something was there that was new. Something was there that was there that had not been there before, and they tied it in with the Jewish prophecies, and they began to follow this new cosmic astrological phenomenon. Now, they're called magi. Where in the world do we get that from? As a matter of fact, have you heard them called kings before, right? They're called magi, wise men, king. Who are they really? The best term for them is magi, by the way. Magi, magi were priests normally of the Persian people. So these were people who were not Jewish. They were, they were from Persia, and they would have been priests in a foreign land. They were advisors to kings. They weren't really kings, okay? 
but we oftentimes call them kings because they were closely associated with kings. These magi were very wise people, advisors of kings. Kings. As a matter of fact, the magi are the first people who are, were associated with, um, with chemistry, alchemy. They knew how to take different, you know what chemistry is, right? You take different things, you put them together, they, they have some type of reaction, and all of a sudden they create some type of phenomenon. They can make stuff disappear, they can make things appear, they can blow up, right? They can make smoke come out of nothing. These magi were the first alchemists. They were chemistry people. That's why we get the word magi from the word magic, okay? Because they were people of chemistry as well. So they're not kings, they're not advi- they're advisors of the kings. These are the magi. Now, what do we what do we how many were there? How many were there? We don't know. We don't know, right? You say three because everybody says there's three, and there's three in every little nice manger scene, right? But we're never really told. I mean, there could have been 12, or they could have been 20, they could have been two, all right? We're never told. What we do know is they brought three different types of gifts. We're told that they had gold, frankincense, or incense, and myrrh. So we're told about that. Now, what we would have known about the Magi is that they traveled in caravans. So it wouldn't have just been them by themselves. They probably would have had a security force with them. They would have had servants to help them all along the way to be there for them. So it might have been a host of people who finally journeyed all that way and arrived in Bethlehem to see the Christ. Now, this is interesting. They arrive in Jerusalem and they meet with King Herod. In that meeting with King Herod, the advisors are called in and they discover that The prophecies say it's Bethlehem. That's where you need to go to find the new king. And what do we learn about the Magi from that point forward? We find out that they arrive at the place. The Bible says, I love it, they are filled with joy. They overflow with joy that they've come to the end of their journey and they've found the baby that tied in with the Jewish scriptures. The Bible says they knelt. Don't miss that. They knelt. And they presented their gifts. They are worshiping this baby. Now, listen. Grasp this with me, if you will. You have heard this story so much that it's so easy to miss the scandal. There is, this is a scandalous passage. Matthew is writing to Jews. He is writing to try to tell Jews that your Messiah has been born. Why in the world would he start here? He doesn't start like Luke does with the census and the journey. He doesn't do that. You know what he does? He starts with a story that is so scandalous that he says there were foreigners. And God called foreigners to come all the way to worship Jesus. this This would be tantamount to me telling you that Jesus was born tonight and that God invited somebody on the other side of the world from another religion. Let's just say they're from India. They're Hindu, and God invited the Hindu folks to come and worship right here. Do you know what that would sound like to the regular person who was Jewish reading this? They would think to themselves, they looked down on people of other religions. These were pagans. They looked down on people from even, even other regions, not just the religions. And what this tells us right out of the gate is that Matthew is trying to show us that God cares about people of even other religions, and that God cares about people of even no religion, so much so that he would invite them into this moment. What is God doing? God is showing us through the very opening scriptures of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, 
that God cares about irreligious people and about religious people that aren't even lined up with the Jewish faith or the Christian faith. He cares about those people. Now, does that mean that we do away with that whole scripture that says Jesus is the way, the truth, and life? No, it doesn't. But what it does remind us is that God cares about them and that he shows up to invite them to his table and that God goes after them. And then guess what? God says to you and us, remember what Jesus' words were right before he left? When Jesus was all done and he had, he, would, he had come out of the tomb and he was about to ascend into heaven, you remember what he looked at us and said, right? He looked at people just like you and me and he said, now go into all the world. Go into all the world and make disciples of all people. He was reminding us of the very beginning story that God invites people of different religions, different regions to come and worship. By the way, just a little side footnote. Joseph and Mary escape off to Egypt. They only have what's on their back. Joseph has to go start a new home there. They're there for years, and it's in that place that Joseph has to, he has to start a whole new business. He has to look after the family. How were they taken care of during that trek? How were they sustained in Egypt? You probably know the answer to that, right? How cool is it that gold showed up on the night of his birth, right? How cool is it that God provided even for that journey before they would even go? And how did he do it? From people who were far, far away. Now, who was King Herod? King Herod. King Herod was uh, 70 year old, years old when Jesus was born. And he had been the ruler of the Jewish people, he, overseeing them for Rome for a period of 35 years when Jesus was born. And as a matter of fact, King Herod was the first person ever called the king of the Jews. That was King Herod's title. He had been given that title by the Roman Senate. And for 35 years, he had overseen these, this ragtag group of Jews in Israel. Now, if you study King Herod, you will find out that one, one incredible thing about Herod was he was a massive builder. I mean, he was kind of like Trump of his day, right? He would build all over the place. He, if you wanted to go, and, and if you go to the Holy Land today, you will go from place to place to place, and if you ask when was this built and under, who, under whose reign, you'll find out that King Herod built and he built and he built. He wanted to kind of mimic the building of Rome, but do it in Israel. So he was an incredible builder. But also, and this is, not to, this is very important, he was an incredibly insecure megalomaniac. I mean, he was a... He was a paranoid schizophrenic. You, you can know that because he longed for power so much so that if he was afraid that his family would take power, he would just kill them. So I wrote down in my notes here a few of the folks that he killed. I mean, in order to keep the peace, and he did keep the peace in Israel, he killed a lot of Jews. He did. He killed a lot of Jews to make sure that the peace was going to be kept in Israel. But not only that, he killed uh, his first wife, his second wife, who he really loved a lot, his third wife, and his fourth wife, and always said that he really regretted killing his second wife. He killed his oldest son because his oldest son, he thought, was aspiring to one day be king and might overthrow him. And then guess what he did? I don't think he realized it, that once you kill your oldest son, guess what? The next one becomes the next oldest. And so he killed another son, and he killed another son. He murdered his own children to make sure that he remained in power. This is who King Herod was. Now, what's interesting is, according to the Matthew narrative, the wise men show up, the magi show up, and the Bible says, some, some translations say they, that King Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. But some translations say King Herod was frightened. Other translations say, 
King Herod was terrified and all of Jerusalem with him. Don't miss that part, by the way. Because if you lived in Jerusalem and you heard that a new king was being born, even if it was a baby, and you knew who was over everybody else and how he, he freaked out and would, would fear somebody losing power, you thought your own life could be in trouble. So King Herod was frightened, disturbed, terrified, and all of Jerusalem with him when this word got out. And what does he do? In order to maintain his power, you know what he does, right? He lies to the Magi. Go and find the baby. And when you found it, would you come back here and give a report to me? Because I want to go and worship too. He didn't plan on going to worship. He wanted to annihilate this new baby who the scriptures had spoken about. And then we get that story, right? Classically called the slaughter of the innocents. Where every two-year-old little boy in all that area would be killed. By the way, probably 500 people or so living in Bethlehem at that time. So maybe, a, maybe as many as 60 to 90 little boys, two years and under, might have been killed. We don't really know the numbers. A few weeks ago, I, I went to go see the new Star Wars. Real quick test. How many of you have seen it? Rogue One. All right. I see you over there, Tommy. I know. Not many of us. By the way, really good Star Wars if you're a Star Wars fanatic, right? When I started this series four weeks ago, I talked to you about how in Star Wars there's light and darkness, and how that light and darkness is battling back and forth, and that how one of the powerful things about Star Wars is the question is, will the person, will the, will the protagonist, will the heroes succumb to the darkness, or will they give way to the light inside of them? And I was looking back, and I, I found this quote from Yoda. And I know this is a stretch, but Tom's here, so i gotta, I got to quote Star Wars tonight. Uh, listen to Yoda talking to young Anakin Skywalker, who would one day become Darth Vader. And this, is, this quote I pulled out because it reminds me of who Herod is, this, this very fearful person of losing power. Yoda says to Anakin Skywalker, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. You know, if you could see Yoda saying that to Anakin Skywalker, you could get a picture of who this guy, King Herod, is. He is a person who fear is at the core of his being, and out of that does flow anger, hate, and suffering into other people's lives. So inherit, who is he? Inherit is racism. Inherit is prejudice. Inherit is bigotry. He, he has hatred for so many people. In him is a fear of losing control. And by the way, every generation has King Herods. Every generation. We don't have to go back too far to remember that there was a guy named Hitler who was filled with hate and anger and suffering, he, he, that's who he was. And after Hitler, Stalin, who starved so many hundreds of thousands of his own people to death because of his own fear and his own controlling power. Right now, right now, across the world, a guy named Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong I'm saying that right? Kim Jong-un is starving his own people on the other side of the world. Why? For his own power, not caring for them. Right now in our own world, we have ISIS who will destroy anything to get their way to establish their caliphate. And how about Bashar al-Assad in Syria? 
how he is annihilating his own people and will not step aside, but is in a thirst for power. Every generation has a King Herod. But juxtaposed with King Herod is a new king, King Jesus. King Jesus, or or some people would say on this night, the Christ child. Or some would look at him and say, that is Emmanuel. Now I want to blow your mind for a minute. I want you just to imagine what the Magi would have arrived to. The Bible says they arrived to a house. They didn't arrive to a manger. They didn't arrive to a stable. They arrived to a house. And the Bible didn't call him a baby. The Bible called him a child. But they would have arrived to a little can I borrow? Is this Caleb? Caleb, come here for a minute, buddy. How old are you, Caleb? How old are you, buddy? Six. I don't know that Jesus would have been six, but let's just imagine a little boy. Let's just imagine a little boy. This is a handsome little boy, isn't it? Yeah. Can you imagine, can you imagine the Magi showing up to a little boy? And can you imagine this? Get your head around this. Is that God? The Bible says... <laughs> the Bible says... Watch this. The Bible says that this king, King Jesus, was a different king. That this child, this Christ child, he was Emmanuel. God with us. I got to tell you, I've been a Christ follower for a really long time, and that is so hard. When I, when I get beyond just the narrative and the simple faith, when I actually get to this place of looking at a child and thinking to myself, I mean, could that be God? You see, what Jesus did was he, he put on flesh, and God came and dwelt with us, and the Magi showed up, and they, these astrologers, these alchemists, these advisors to kings, the Bible says, they knelt down and they presented their gifts to him. These foreigners, these, these priests of Persia, they acknowledged the Christ, God in the flesh, with them. I love you, buddy. Thank you. Grab a seat. If you could just, hey, would, y'all. If you could get your mind wrapped around that, now you've got an understanding of what is on the purpose, what is the modus operandi of Jesus. That Jesus is coming to the earth. Watch this. I will become like them. I will live among them. I'll hear their thoughts. I'll talk to them. I'll show them the way of my Father. I will teach them the ways of the kingdom. And I will even enlist them for the service of my Father. And when I leave them, I will entrust the work of my Father to them, and I will even come and dwell inside of them. Don't miss the power and the difference of this king. See, Jesus looked a lot different than Herod. He was not filled with fear. He was not filled with hate. He was not filled with suffering and anger. Jesus comes, and he is the embodiment of mercy. Compassion, love. He cares and gives grace away even to prostitutes and sinners. This is who Jesus is. He is filled with compassion. And when he leaves, he says, Lo, I am with you 
I am with you to the end of the age. You see, what Jesus was telling us was he was a king, not just for a short time period, which every king wants to hold on to their little power for their little time period. Jesus was saying, I am king, and I will be king forever. He was saying to them, if you trust me, if you trust me, I will give you hope and purpose to live on forever, but you must believe in me. He was Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that's easy when life is, you know, going great. But that's a lot different when all of a sudden you think about where you're at and how God could come in and change your situation. How he for you, Pushpa, Pushpa, thank you for lighting our candle tonight. But Pushpa recently had a death in her family. Went to go travel to be with her family. And how in the middle of death, we can remember that the King Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How for you, Sally, who's going to another state and going to start a whole new schooling, how you could know that king is already there in the future right now for you. For the one who has a diagnosis in this crowd, for the one who does not have a job and is praying for that job and is holding out hope, for the one of us who, who feels like our relationships are dangling by a thread and they're about to break apart, what it means is that that Christ child, the King, King Jesus, can be your King. It's a lot different than a King Herod. That he will come and give hope and power to you in the middle of your crisis, in the middle of your struggle, wherever you are. That's the power of King Jesus, and he's a lot different. And so here's my question for you tonight. Who and what kingdom do you want to follow? Would you rather follow King Herod or would you really follow King Jesus? See, King Herod is the king of this world. And there's been a lot of people like that who thirst for power, hunger for their little time, their little 15 minutes of fame. You want to follow that kind of king? Or would you rather follow a king filled with compassion and mercy and grace and hope and that will be king forever? Which king would you rather follow? But maybe more importantly, which kingdom would you rather follow? Would you rather follow the, the people who are the kingdoms of this earth, which is passing away, which is so finite and filled with sin, or would you rather follow the king who is the king of all? He's more than a Christ child. He is more than King Jesus, right? He is Emmanuel God with us. For the, so for the question I have for you tonight is, if you've never done so before, won't you say yes to King Jesus? Won't you say yes to following Him? Won't you say yes to the Christ child, Emmanuel, who will be God in the flesh for you whenever you go through any difficult phases of life, Say yes to him and receive the life that he's offering. I know for me, that's the king I want to follow. I bet for you, hitting the pause button on life and coming to a Christmas Eve service, that's probably the king you want to follow too. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to invite, your, invite you to bow your heads. And as you bow your heads, I'm also going to invite you
to say yes to King Jesus. There are countless times in this life, God, that we must decide who we're going to follow. We've heard these frames before. We've been invited to make a decision before about Jesus, who you are and what your claims are. But I pray tonight that every person in this place would say yes to you. To say yes, that I want to follow the King, that His reign has no end. That I want to follow the King who would leave heaven to come to earth for me. To say yes, I want to follow a King filled with compassion and mercy and grace. That's the King that I want to follow. To say yes to a kingdom that will not end. To say tonight, I want to be a part of that kingdom. I know it, it will affect me for eternity. I won't be perfect, but I will be changed and I'll be forgiven and I'll be becoming more and more like you, Jesus. This is our prayer. And if that's you tonight, whether you've been a Christian for you know, 40 or 50 years or 20 or 10 or 5, or whether you're not a Christian tonight, I invite you just underneath your breath, would you just say those, that three-letter word, yes? Yes. Yes, I want to follow you, Jesus. Emmanuel, God with me. With me, wherever I go, you will be with me. I thank you, Jesus, for life. I thank you that in a few minutes as we come to this table, we will take bread and we'll take juice and we'll be remembered one more time that you came in the flesh for us. And we will take that into our bodies and we'll be reminded of your sacrifice for us. We worship you on this evening. And we say thank you for coming to the earth for us. Born as a baby. King. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen, church? Amen. Hey, if you're going to serve Holy Communion tonight, would you come forward? So let me tell you how this is going to happen, especially if you're kind of new here to Harvest Point. Tonight, we're going to receive Holy Communion, and um, there will be bread and juice at each station. Um, a few things that we would want you to know. If you want to receive gluten-free elements, we would invite you to come to that far table on that side, okay? We, we're offering gluten-free elements right over there. And we would also invite you, because um, we, we're, we had a new change here at Harvest Point. Somebody is helping us be... I guess more um, uh, right when it comes to making sure we wash our hands with antibacterial stuff and all that kind of thing. When you come, would you just hold your hands out? Just hold your hands out and receive the words and receive the bread and take that and dip that in that juice and receive for yourself. Now what's a little bit different at Christmas Eve than normal is we'll actually have candles at every station. So there'll be three people at every station and you'll receive the bread and you'll receive the juice You'll take that under yourself, and then you'll receive a candle, and you can return back to your seat. We'll light those candles and sing in a few minutes, okay? So remember this. Thank God Jesus didn't just stay a baby, right? He became a man. On the night Jesus was giving his life for the world, he grabbed an element across the table, very natural thing, bread, and the Bible says he took a loaf and he broke it. They didn't understand at the moment, but he gave them a picture of what was about to happen. He said, my body is going to be broken for you. Take and eat and receive this. He was giving them a picture of his own suffering. Would you pray with me?
Father, tonight we pray for this bread, that it would be for us a representation of your broken body. When I look upon it, I literally see pores inside the bread. Help us to remember that your body was, a very real body was broken for our, our transgressions, that you were crushed for our iniquities. And may this bread be for us a symbol of your broken body. And then Jesus grabbed the cup that was at the table, and the Bible says that he held it up and he prayed a prayer of blessing over it, and then he passed it around the table and he said, this is the blood of a new covenant. It was a covenant of grace and mercy, not of law. And he said, take every one of you and drink of this, for this is the blood that will wash away sin. As you take and receive this grape juice tonight, may this remind you, in the name of Jesus, and here's the good news of Christ, that the blood of Christ washes away all our sin. All our sin. And by the way, that's a lot of sin in this room, right? It washes away all our sins. So receive the free gift of Christ's sacrifice for you. Would you pray with me? Father, would this tonight, this fruit of the vine, this grape juice be for us a representation of the blood of Christ? Remind us that we don't need to hold on to our sins and our failings and our fallings, but we can give those to you and be washed clean, set anew, and be free of that old bondage ready to serve your kingdom purposes for us. Wash us clean, and may this be a representation of your blood, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen? Amen. So come, if you will, and remember a couple of things. This is not a Methodist table. It's not Harvest Point table. This is the Lord's table. So all are invited. Come. This baby boy has come to earth to bring us joy and just want to sing this song to you. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major left. With every breath I'm singing hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 